not be a more timely event, um, as I suspect everybody in the room is aware. Um, today, a trial that's unique in many ways um, has commenced. Um, it's unique because of the way it was set up by the Security Council, in the sense as well of being the only one of a sort of run of international tribunals that have been set up over the last two decades. This trial, this tribunal, is dealing essentially with one event and, okay, some of the sort of aftermath around that one event. But essentially, you know, unlike the Yugoslav Tribunal, which has got a jurisdiction spreading over many years, numerous events arising out of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, likewise um, the Rwanda Tribunal, which again has sort of multiple um, victims, multiple events in the course of 1994. This is dealing just with the so-called terrorist attack and death of um, Hariri back in 2005. And so it's just a tribunal for an event. And then add on to that the only international tribunal that has commenced a trial having a trial of accused persons who are not before the tribunal, the trial in absentia. We have to go all the way back to Nuremberg, 1945-1946, to have an international trial, remembering the huge movements around human rights that have taken place since 1945 around fair trial due process. Here we have an international trial in a body by the Security Council, which is a trial in absentia. And I think thirdly as well, and we were talking about this just before um, we came in, um, the Security Council's formulation puts terrorism, terrorist acts, right at the forefront. And in fact, in its pre-trial procedures, the tribunal has given the only international law definition of terrorism that we have to date. And so it's against the context of um, the sort of broader concept of the war against terrorism that we have this tribunal. And I believe this is something that you're going to refer to at the outset with the continuation of terrorist acts. So, timely, complex, legal, numerous issues in many ways, and many issues of international law, international criminal law, human rights law that also arise. So I should stop talking and hand over to the experts um, on this, Dr. Nashabi. Um, I had the pleasure of introducing um, what you said four years ago. Uh, yes. yes um, when the <coughs> process was at its very outset, and uh, Dr. Nashabi made many, I think, prescient points at that point uh, about the tribunal and about its work. Um, Dr. Omar Nashabi is a criminal justice specialist. He's a founding member of the Al-Akbar newspaper and a lecturer at the Lebanese American University. He's been an advisor to the Lebanese Minister of Interior for Human Rights and Prisons. He's worked as a consultant for local and international organizations, including the UN Office for Drugs and Crime. He's published on Lebanese prisons, prison reform, and, of course, knows a huge amount about the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, whose origins, pre-trial work, and now you have been following yeah. um, very much since 2005. And I should add that he is now a consultant to the defence, um, which, again, I think you are going to refer to, and an elected member of the UNESCO Lebanese National Committee's Executive Council. Before I hand over to Dr Nishabi, mobile phones, uh, make sure that they are all silent, please. 
Thank you, and I've got a great deal of pleasure in welcoming you back Thank to you. the LSE again and handing over to you for a critical perspective on the Lebanese Special Tribunal. And thank you, Dr. Chinkin. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank the, uh, the Center for the Study of Human Rights and the, uh, the Middle East Center at LSE for inviting me. And uh, I just want to start by ju- just, you know, this morning there was a terrorist attack in, the, uh, in northern Lebanon, uh, which led to the death of uh, four people and injuring more than 20 persons. And I thought this, it would be interesting to mention that at the beginning, because this tribunal is supposed to, to end the cycle of violence, to end impunity. And so I thought I'd mention this at the beginning. Uh, I'm going to try to be as brief as possible. I got so much to say, <laughs> but I would try to narrow it down. I hope I, it won't be too long, too boring. I don't know. I, I would try to, to make it as, uh, you know, as brief as possible. The, uh, t- today uh, starts the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, created by the UN uh, Security Council in 2007, to try the alleged assassin of then former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. STL judges, the registrar, the prosecutor, and the head of the defense office were appointed by the Secretary General of the United Nations. The prosecution has accused five alleged members of Hezbollah, and its investigations are ongoing. Defense counsels were named by the head of the defense office after the court decided to try the indicted in absentia because they are not in custody and were not found in Lebanon. This international tribunal is the first such tribunal to try persons on terrorism charges and charges related to a terrorist act. It is also the first international tribunal to try persons in absentia since the 1945-46 Nuremberg trials where uh, the secretary of Hitler, I believe, was tried in absentia, Bormann, I believe his name. Indictment um, of a, and its support, supporting elements were filed by the STL prosecutor in over one million pages, mostly about telecommunication data and analysis and the so-called circumstantial evidence. An ensemble volumineux de pièces, according to the Belgian uh, pretrial judge. After a brief discussion of the background and creation of the STL, I will present an overview of the indictment and the prosecutor's pretrial brief. This will be followed by an examination of some of the main challenges facing STL defense counsels. We have distributed the background so that we can save some time on, uh, you know, uh, detailing some of the uh, elements included in the indictment and the pretrial brief. Uh, as a consultant for the STL Defense Councils, I am bound by uh, confidentiality and will refer only to declassified and uh, public documents. Uh, before uh, presenting the main contents of the STL indictment and the prosecutor's pretrial brief, it is perhaps important to note that a substantial part of the STL prosecutor's confidential documents were leaked to the media before the indictment was made public. On, on May 23, 2009, Der Spiegel published a controversial report that included confidential UNIIIC records, United Nations Independent Investigative International Commission records. The report's author, uh, journalist Eric Follat, claimed that he, quote, has learned from sources close to the tribunal and verified by examining internal documents that the Hariri case is about to take a sensational turn. Intensive investigations in Lebanon are all pointing to a new conclusion that it was not the Syrians, but instead special forces from the Lebanese Shiite organization Hezbollah that planned and executed the diabolical attack. Tribunal prosecutor Belmar and his judges apparently want to hold back this information, which they have been aware for about a month, unquote. Belmar refused to comment. The actual STL indictment that was made public in August 2011 included information that was almost identical to a Canadian media report, CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, of late 2010. 
The report referred to investigators who worked with Belmar and showed copies of confidential investigation records claiming that CBC, claiming that, quote, CBC News has obtained cell phone and other telecommunications evidence that is at the core of the case, unquote. The report concluded that telecommunications analysis led to the, quote, single biggest breakthrough the commission had accomplished since its formation, unquote. On April 9, 2013, the website of Hariri's Al-Mustaqbal newspaper published a list of names under the heading, quote, Secret Witnesses of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. The, pl- the paper later released a statement claiming its web- the website had been hacked. An online group that calls itself Journalists for the Truth and Al-Akhbar newspaper had also published alleged STL witnesses' identities and photographs in January 2013. STL President Judge David Baragwanath ordered the investigation of these alleged leaks on April 29, 2013. The investigation, which may lead to pressing contempt charges, is restricted to alleged leaks in local media and will not probe Der Spiegel and CBC alleged leaks. Uh, last week, on January 8, 2014, the Israeli newspaper Yediot Ahronot published information that was apparently leaked from the STL prosecutor's office to Ronan Solomon, who was identified by the newspaper as, quote, an Israeli intelligence analyst and research researcher specializing in Hezbollah's security and intelligence mechanisms, unquote. The leaked document allegedly included, quote, private details of one of the accused, Mustafa Badreddin, family, his family, his social circles, and business affairs, unquote. And the author claims that, quote, Hezbollah's operations high command would prefer that this information remained hidden, unquote. He further claims that, quote, investigators tracked uh, Badreddin's conversations from 2000 till 2008, unquote. One day later, on January 10, 2014, six days ago, Kuwaiti newspaper Al-Jarida reported that, quote, according to a senior source in Jerusalem, unquote, Israeli intelligence provided the special tribunal for Lebanon information, quote, providing, proving Hezbollah's involvement in the assassination of former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hari in 2005, unquote. Let's move to the indictment. The prosecutor submitted an initial indictment on January 17, 2011, and amended it three times before the pretrial judge confirmed it on June 28, 2010. Since then, the indictment has been amended twice, on November 8, 2012, and April 17, 2013. The indictment and accompanying arrest warrants were transmitted to the Lebanese authorities on June 30, 2011. The four individuals' names in the initial indictment are... Salim Ayash, Mustafa Badreddin, Hussein Anaisi, and Assad Sabah. On June 5, 2013, the pretrial judge confirmed a second indictment uh, submitted by the prosecutor accusing Hassan Habib Mirai. On December 18, December 18, 2013, uh, the prosecution sent a request to join the Mirai case to the Ayash, Badreddin, Anaisi, and Sabra case. These five men are alleged active members of Hezbollah, according to the prosecutor. Defense counsels had filed requests to nullify the amendment, uh, the amended indictment, claiming that it lacks sufficient details supporting the, materials, the material facts in the crime's charge and is therefore defective. Counsels also requested further and better particularization of the prosecution case. However, the trial chamber dismissed the defense counsel's request on June 12, 2013. 
Uh, before examining the details and, uh, of the basis of the indictment, it is perhaps crucial to mention that the pretrial judge notes, notes that the indictment and its one million pages of supporting elements rely to a large extent on circumstantial evidence, which works, quote, according to the pretrial judge, which works logically by inference and deduction, unquote. In light of his verifications, the pretrial judge deems that this evidence is, quote, sufficiently credible and relevant to review the indictment initially, unquote. However, he also states that in order to lead to a conviction, it will, quote, have to be shown to be established beyond reasonable doubt by the trial chamber, unquote. The pretrial judge further notes that the prosecution failed to provide, quote, indication as to the motives of the attack, unquote. So the one million pages of... Uh, Indicting elements do not include any indication as to the motives of the attack according to the pretrial judge. In the following parts of this seminar, I present a summary of the prosecutor's statements in the indictment and the pretrial brief and the position of the defense counsel on these claims. One, allegations on the identity of the accused. The prosecutor submitted two types of information about the identity of Salim Ayash, Mustafa Badreddin, Hassan Anaisi, Asad Sabra, and Hassan Maray. Biographical information and information about their religious and political affiliation. Article 59 of the indictment reads, quote, all four accused are supporters of Hezbollah, which is a political and military organization in Lebanon, unquote. It then further claimed that, quote, in the text of the indictment, in the past, the military wing of Hezbollah has been implicated in terrorist acts. Persons trained by the military wing have the capacity to carry out terrorist attacks whether or not on its behalf, unquote. The same article in the indictment states that, quote, Badreddin and Ayash are related to each other through marriage and to, together to a certain Ahmad Mughniya. They are brothers-in-law. Ahmad Mughniya was a founding member of Hezbollah and in charge of its military wing from 1983 until he was killed in Damascus on February 12, 2008. He was wanted internationally for terrorist offenses, unquote, full stop. Mughniya had been on the FBI's most wanted list since the 1980s, long before Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, became bywords for terrorism. However, it is not clear how the family ties of the accused are relevant to the case. Paragraph C of the same article further states that, the article in the indictment, quote, based on their experience training and affiliation with Hezbollah. Therefore, it is reasonable to conclude that Badruddin and Ayash had the capacity to undertake the 14 February 2005 attack, unquote. Hence, what the prosecutor is actually saying in the indictment are two different things. That the indicted are supporters of Hezbollah and that they are affiliated and were trained by Hezbollah. It is perhaps relevant to note here that although the STL mandate is confined to individual criminal responsibility, Article 3 of the STL mandate states that it has jurisdiction over persons who, quote, contributed to the commission of the crime by a group of persons acting with a common purpose where such contribution is intentional and is either made with the aim of furthering the general criminal activity or purpose of the group or in the knowledge of the intention of the group to commit the crime, unquote. On July 22, 2013, the European Union 
July 22, 2013, just a few months ago, the European Union agreed to put the armed wing of Hezbollah on its terrorist blacklist. Uh, it is not yet clear if this European decision, taken just a few months before trial starts, had a substantial impact on the respect for the principle of presumption of innocence, considering that many SDL personnel are Europeans and its seat is in the Netherlands, the Netherlands, the only European country that designates the entire Hezbollah organization and its adherents as terrorists by law. It is also not clear whether the fact that the SDL president, prosecutor, and registrar and registrar, and several others who currently hold key positions in the SCL are citizens of the few states, respectively New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, that have legally designated the entire Hezbollah organization as terrorist, has an impact on SCL proceedings. Paragraph 2 of Article 3 of the SCL mandate states that, quote, with respect to superior and subordinate relationships, a superior shall be criminally responsible for any of the crimes committed by subordinates under his or effective authority and control as a result of his or her failure to exercise control properly over such subordinates, unquote. It may therefore be anticipated that the STL prosecutor will extend the allegations to Hezbollah's leadership in the expected upcoming indictments. Now let's move to the uh, evidence, the alleged uh, telephone networks and attribution of SIM cards to the accused. The STL prosecutor states that there were four closed telephone networks and one group of phones, and that the indicted persons were using one or several phones that are part of these networks or the group, and that this establishes their involvement in the perpetration of the February 14, 2005 attack. The prosecutor claims that the investigators discovered the existence of these networks and group of phones by examining similarities in phone line activation dates, usage location and dates, and modes of communication. He further claims that the alleged networks and group of phones were used for specific activities related to the crime and that most of the calls were made uh, to other phones that are also part of the same network or group. In addition to the network, of, uh, network phones, the prosecutor explored the usage of alleged PMPs, personal mobile phones, and uh, sequential mobile phones, SMPs. SMPs are phones used successively with different phone lines, which allegedly means that each phone was used over several weeks or months and then replaced by another one. He claims that some of the persons using network phones also had PMPs and SMPs and that this contributed to their identification. The prosecution uh, relies on a vast volume of complex technical reports to back up his claims about telephones use of the accused and, is presented, uh, and it presented a complicated analysis of the usage of phone lines and mobile phone devices. Each of the four alleged networks and groups of phones was given a color by the SCL prosecutor. We wanted to actually show you this, but then we thought it was too complex. I could forward it to you if you need to have access to the tables of the phone lines and the different networks. Uh, the prosecutor uses the following methodology, just in brief, to give you the general methodology used by the prosecutor to attribute phone lines uh, from the red, green, blue, and yellow networks and the purple group of phones to the accused. Based on call sequence tables, CSTs, uh, composed of detailed information about calls made, uh, made during uh, the designated period, i.e., the, uh, the number of the call, the number of the receiver, the date and time and length of the call, and the antenna, antennas used 
for the call. Uh, a number of witnesses are used and uh, relevant documents are presented to confirm the identity of the phone line users. The prosecutor also presents detailed and complex analysis of the timing, location, and frequency of calls made and received, and he, he employed uh, a co-location technique, uh, uh, tracking the usage of phone devices to identify the users geographically, tracking them geographically in order to know that this is actually the person using the phone, allegedly. Uh, this technique was used to claim that the accused used more than one phone and that they also had PMPs, per personal mobile phones. However, it should be noted that the co-location of two phone lines may not necessarily mean that these phones were used by the same person, but that but it's possible that two persons are on the same location. The prosecutor attributes to Ayash four PMPs and four other phone lines. The man was carrying eight phone lines. Uh, one, of the, uh, one in the alleged red network, a second in the alleged green network, a third in the alleged blue network, and a fourth in the alleged yellow network. What a man. The prosecutor attributes to Badreddin and his alleged aliases, Sami Isa and Safi Badr, two PMPs, nine SMPs, and one in the green network, the prosecutor attributes one phone line to, in the alleged violet group of phones to Anaisi and another phone line to the, uh, in the alleged violet group to Sabra. He attributes two phone lines to Meray, one in the alleged green network and the other in the alleged group of phones. Uh, counsels for the defense challenge the prosecution's allegation of telecommunication. The Ayash defense rejects the allegation that he has used any phone lines that were part of the above-listed alleged networks. The Anaisi defense position is that none of the telecom information analysis can be considered beyond reasonable doubt. And it further adds that the purple phones do not form a network of phones, and there is no credible evidence proving that any of these phones was used by Anaisi, especially not on the dates and at the location specified by the prosecutor. The Sabra defense counsel presents similar challenges to the prosecutor's claims and adds that there may be alternative conclusions to the prosecutor's telecom analysis. The Bajuddin defense rejects the entire telecom allegations, whereas the Meray defense counsels appointed on December 23, 2013, just a few days ago, just three weeks before the start of trial, did not have the time yet to read the vast amount of documents presented by the prosecutor as supporting elements in the indictment. Obviously. <laughs> Alleged activities preceding the February 24, uh, 2005 attack. These activities are, according to the indictment, surveillance, preparation for the false claim of responsibility, and purchase of the vehicle used in the attack or allegedly used in the attack of February 14, 2005. The prosecutor's investigation records uh, uh, chart the movements of former Prime Minister Hariri's convoy months before his assassination and determines, based on co-location technique, the location of the phones in question and thereafter the identity of the users of these phones. The prosecutor claims that Badreddin was in control and that, in coordination with Ayash, he overviewed the surveillance of Hariri's movements and the purchase of the Mitsubishi trash, truck that was later filled with explosives. Hunaisi and Sabra are alleged to have recruited Ahmed Abu Adas, who falsely claimed the responsibility for the assassination of Hariri on video. The prosecutor further claims that Badreddin and Malay coordinated the false claim of responsibility. The prosecutor claims that Hunaisi and Sabra are responsible for delivering the videotape in which Ahmed Abu Adas states that he is part of a religious extremist group called Al-Nusra Wal-Jihad Fi Bilad Sham uh, and that killed Hariri. To support these claims, the prosecutor refers to, telephone, telephone card, to a telephone card 
which was allegedly used on February 14, 2005 by Sabra and Onaisi. It was used by Sabra and Onaisi to make four phone calls from four different phone booths to Al Jazeera three times and to Reuters once. However, the prosecutor could not determine if it was Sabra or Onaisi who made the call. <laughs> Defense counsels for Onaisi and Sabra consider this lack of precision violates the rights of the accused, namely the right to be informed precisely of the charges against them. The prosecutor identified Sabra and Anaisi by showing that the purple phones attributed to them were in the proximity of the telephone booths. However, the purple phones were not operating, meaning operation of the phones, they were not making or receiving calls or messages at the time the calls from the phone booths were made. This makes the allegations of the prosecutor, to say the least, uh, questionable. The prosecutor evokes a pattern of criminal behavior of Badreddin pointing to attacks perpetrators in Kuwait on December 12, 1983, following which one of Badreddin's alleged by uh, aliases, Elias Fuad Saab, was convicted on March 27, 1984, and incarcerated until he escaped from prison in 1990. The prosecutor refers to a suicide attack in Kuwait committed against the U.S. Embassy in which Saab had purchased the vehicle and, as an explosive expert, prepared the explosive charge and planned the entire operation. The Badreddin Defense, Defense Council challenges these allegations based on the following. Briefly, Badreddin and Saab are not the same person. Uh, Saab's fundamental rights may have been violated uh, in the Kuwait court and the alleged pattern of criminal behavior is not clearly defined. I'll move to the defense after you know, briefly presenting what the indictment is about. Uh, on February 2nd, 2012, one day after the decision of the trial chamber to proceed to trial in, with trial in absentia, the head of the SDL uh, Defense Office, uh, François Roux, appointed four counsels, Antoine Corquemaz, Vincent Courcel-Labrousse, Eugene O'Sullivan, and David Young to defend the rights and interests of the four indicted persons. On December, te- 20, on December 20, 2013, the same day the trial chamber decided to hold trial in absentia for Hassan Meray, Ru appointed Mohammed Awini from Tunisia to defend his rights and interests. Main challenges to the defense. The, the principle of equality of arms falls within the fair trial guarantee of the STL statute and is viewed as having a direct correlation to the right to adequate time and facilities. This uh, principle obliges any judicial body to ensure that neither party is put at a disadvantage when presenting its case. Defense counsels must be placed on an equal footing with the prosecution at all stages of the proceedings in order to protect the right of the accused to a fair trial. This does not seem to be the case here because of three main challenges. The lack of cooperation with defense counsel's requests for assistance, insufficient resources to cross-examine the vast volume of documentation presented by the prosecutor, non-disclosure, non-disclosure by the prosecution of the documents that are needed for the defense to prepare the case, and the various challenges of in absentia defense. Let me start with the uh, non-disclosure. 
Uh, on December 21, 2011, the prosecution filed an application seeking the interim non-disclosure of the identity of some witnesses in accordance with the Rule 115, 116 of the Rules of Procedure and Evidence and for, for protective measures to be granted. On March 15, 2012, the prosecution filed another application seeking that the pretrial judge issue an order for the interim non-disclosure of the identity of some expert witnesses and international investigators until 30 days before the presentation of the evidence for, of the prosecution. The Victims and Witnesses Unit is in the tribunal stated that in order to determine the levels of risk uh, in question, it reviewed the risk assessment for the expert witnesses in a general manner without verifying the information on the pro that the prosecution relied on which the prosecution relied. The prosecution is of the opinion that the pretrial judge has sufficient evidence establishing that the 16 international experts concerned are in danger or at risk. The prosecution notes, in addition, uh, that reference to the experts or to official representatives of a state could likewise have an impact on other officials from that state. Lastly, the prosecution submits that the redactions sought do not relate to the substance of the reports, but to the identity of their authors, and are therefore consistent with the rights of the accused. On April 11, 2012, counsels for the defense of the accused determined that there was no basis for the prosecution's applications. The defense for Ayash, Badreddin, and Onaisi argued that the non-disclosure of the identity of experts does not allow them to verify the, their qualifications, which considerably compromises their right to examine the evidence. The time limit of 30 days proposed by the prosecution is not sufficient to allow the defense to prepare effectively. Defense counsels draw a clear distinction between inter partes disclosure and disclosure to the public. They are of the opinion that although it might be understandable that for security reasons the experts do not wish their identities to be disclosed to the public, the prosecution failed to demonstrate that the confidential disclosure of that information to the defense might constitute a danger, especially when the proceedings in question are taking place in absentia. On November 13, 2012, the prosecution filed an application for non-disclosure, a third one, of w more witness statements, investigators' notes, investigators' notes, and audio recordings. The prosecution maintained that, the, the, that disclosing witness protection statements, which include specific risks identified by the witness in question, quote, may generally increase the risk to the security of these witnesses, unquote. The prosecution sought authorization for redactions to three more witness statements on October 18, October 18 2013. The prosecution held that non-disclosure is necessary for information that would allegedly threaten the security of witnesses, such as, quote, reference to telephone numbers, how they commute to and from work, and the security of their residences, unquote. More specifically, the prosecution submitted that these redactions in the three witness statements pertain to information related to the witness's personal safety and, quote, witness's personal opinion about his or her security, unquote. The chamber granted the prosecution's request on November 8, 2013. Questionable rules. SDR rules and procedures and evidence set by the SDR judges raise questions about the transparency and adequacy necessary for the attainments of justice. Paragraph F of Rule 118 states that, quote, if the prosecutor calls a witness to introduce in evidence any information provided under this rule, neither the pretrial judge nor the trial chamber may compel that witness to answer any question 
relating to the information or its origin if the witness declines to answer on grounds of confidentiality, unquote. This represents a clear breach of the basic guarantees for the attainment of justice because judges uh, should have the authority to question the source of evidence collected by the prosecutor and presented in court. Rule 117 allows non-disclosure of information to protect, quote, security interests of states and other international entities, unquote. This rule states that where the disclosure of information, quote, may affect the security interests of a state or international entity, the prosecutor may apply ex parte to the pretrial judge sitting in camera for an order to be relieved of his obligation to disclose in whole or in part, unquote. Bedreddin counsel Antoine Corkmaz said in a pretrial conference held on October 17, 2013, that the defense, quote, received large numbers of disclosure in July, August, and September 2013, without even discussing that evidence which is con contested and which has been brought to the attention of the pretrial judge, unquote. He added that, quote, on the 22nd of October, the prosecutor disclosed exculpatory evidence to us in relation to a particular matter. Of course, the defense also has a right to run its own investigation and to hear its own witnesses. But unfortunately, we are unable to act because each time that we make a request as a defense, the request remains without response. Therefore, we have been unable to interview our own witnesses." Unquote. On December 18, 2013, December 18, 2013, on the eve of the start of the trial, the prosecutor submitted a request to add a number of witnesses and exhibits. The prosecution seeks to add, quote, three recently, recently received expert reports related to communications evidence, unquote, without providing any explanation as to why these reports have only recently been commissioned. Such a late submission of new, apparently incriminating evidence, especially evidence relating to telecommunications, inevitably had a substantial impact on the defense preparation for trial, in particular on the planning of the work of its telecommunication expert. The instructions of the defense counsel to their telecommunication expert, including deadlines by which work is to be completed, are based on the evidence that has already been served, with a particular emphasis on the prosecutor's expert's reports. Further to the above, the prosecutor's updated phone attribution expert uh, report of Bedreddin was disclosed to counsel appointed to defend him on December 23, 2013. The question is relevant to the defense, whether less than one month is considered adequate time to examine the updated telecommunication alleged evidence presented by the prosecution. Lack of cooperation. The, uh, on September 27, 2013, Excuse me. The defense submitted its motion seeking cooperation of Lebanon concerning nine outstanding requests sent by the to the relevant Lebanese authorities between March 2012 and August 2012. The request sought information regarding the known whereabouts of the accused and telecommunication information. Further requests relating to telecommunications information were sent to the Lebanese judicial authorities between September 2012 and November 2012 concerning information on deactivation and SMS records, cell towers, handset, theoretical and physical cell coverage, relevant SIM cards, relevant telecards and data, data records, uh, jammers and interference in the Lebanese mobile phone system and theoretical cell coverage models. We didn't receive this information. 
The lack of response by the Lebanese authorities to these requests was the subject of the second motion seeking the cooperation of Lebanon, filed by the defense before the pretrial judge on February 4, 2013. In relation to the first motion, the pretrial judge rendered his decision on the defense request seeking to obtain cooperation of Lebanon on February 11, 2013, and invited the Lebanese authorities to reply effectively and specifically to the various, various remaining requests of the defense, and to do so within 30 calendar days from the notification of the decision at the latest. On April 4, 2013, the defense filed its third motion seeking cooperation of Lebanon concerning two requests sent on the Le- to the Lebanese authorities on September and November 2012, respectively. The requests sought a variety of information regarding terrorist groups operating in Lebanon and further potential perpetrators of the February 14, 2005 attack. On the same date, April 4, the defense also submitted the fourth motion seeking cooperation of Lebanon concerning a request sent to the Lebanese authorities on November 2012 and subsequently followed up on January 9, 2013, seeking information on the residences and the workplaces of the accused, their friends, family, and other associates. On August 28, 2013, the defense seized the pretrial judge in its fifth motion seeking cooperation of Lebanon. No response had been received to the defense's requests. On the same day, the defense also filed its sixth motion seeking cooperation of Lebanon. Concerning the request sent to the Lebanese Ministry of Justice on May 6, 2013, this sought information regarding army personnel. The prosecution's case is founded almost exclusively upon the attribution of phone lines to the accused and the use of these numbers to facilitate and orchestrate the crimes set out in the indictment at particular locations on particular dates and times. The first, second, fourth, fifth, and, and sixth motion all directly concern this attribution and the strength of the prosecutor's evidence in allegedly locating the users of these phones on particular days. The defense must independently investigate to ascertain the credibility of the prosecution's case in this regard, as recognized by the pretrial judge, steps to verify and to ensure the reliability of telecommunications data must therefore be taken. The defense initially sought information in the first and second motion from the Lebanese authorities on a wide variety of telecommunications-related information used by the Lebanese phone companies to estimate where a caller using a a mobile phone was located at the time they initiated the call. This includes how call data records are generated, kept, manipulated, and used, and how the software used to locate such users is created, used, and verified. Even accepting, for the sake of argument, that specific phone lines may be attributed exclusively to the accused, it is not clear that the wide range of telecommunications-related evidence relied upon extensively by the prosecution is sufficiently reliable to locate effectively the accused on the relevant dates at the relevant locations described in the indictment. The Lebanese authorities have not disputed, they have not disputed the fact that they are in possession of all requested material. Instead, they have routinely ignored the requests either outright or in part delayed the process by requiring the defense to redirect the request or denying competence to deal with the request, indicated that they would respond but then failed to do so, and issued a blanket response that the information was transferred to the Lebanese judicial authorities, uh, from the Lebanese judicial authorities to the uh, tribunal on April 7, 2009. 
the nature of the investigations conducted so far and uh, the uh, current proceedings before the trial renders the cooperation of Lebanon crucial. The Hariri explosion occurred almost nine years ago and was initially investigated by the Lebanese authorities. No other state, therefore, has access to the information sought by the defense. Nor does the defense have the ability to take instructions from the accused or conduct its own follow-up ground investigation in a safe and secure environment. If Lebanon is able to refuse, ignore, or fail to respond diligently to requests for cooperation by blanket responses and procrastination, then it would defeat the very purpose of the STL agreement and no fair trial could reasonably be said to be possible. The systematic failure of the Lebanese authorities to cooperate with the defense is now at a stage whereby the rights of the accused can no longer be guaranteed. These rights are not exhaustive, are non-negotiable, and must be strictly respected. The prosecution has not been prejudiced by non-cooperation from the Lebanese or has not filed any submissions asserting otherwise. In each of the UNIIIC reports, Lebanon is specifically thanked for its support and cooperation with the UNIIIC as uh, the Commission details the close interaction it enjoyed with the Lebanese authorities. Uh, insufficient resources, last point. Uh, during a, a pre-trial conference held on October 29, 2013, Council for ONIC, Vincent Courcel-Labrousse, said to the judges, quote, we've received some one million pages of documents. You have received not a million pages because the prosecutor hasn't sent you everything. The chamber can certainly understand how difficult the situation is for us. I'd like to be very clear as regards to the first chapter of trial. The first chapter deals with explosion. The victims first of all, and then the technical aspects regarding the explosion itself. What I can say at this point to the chamber is that it's extremely difficult to calculate exactly how many experts are going to be working for the prosecution. We, on the defense side, can afford one single expert. So yes, indeed, we've had to make choices. And for the time being, Unless the financial situation of the tribunal improves, in particular as regards to the defense, we, the defense, simply do not have an expert in explosives. So, yes, as regards to the first chapter, we will be there. My team will be there to listen, to hear the experts produced by the prosecution, the numerous experts who've been financed by the office of the prosecutor, which we were not able to do, unquote. During the same pre-trial conference, Counselor Korkman said, quote, we are not yet in possession of all the evidence which we have called for. We have not been able to analyze it or have counter-analysis produced. Our experts' contractual situation remains unresolved, unquote. On the other hand, the, prosecutor, the prosecution uh, was in possession of the fact-finding mission, the UNIIIC and the Lebanese Judicial Investigations files since March 2009, and the first STL prosecutor had served as commissioner for the UNIIIC and had the time and resources to conduct further investigations and employ various experts in forensics, explosives, and telecommunications. The prosecutor and his team also enjoy the support of Lebanese government and a large local and international political coalition aimed, it may be inferred, at criminalizing Hezbollah and, and affirming its involvement in terrorism. 
The defense, on the other hand, suffers from lack of resources, limited time for preparation, and reticent Lebanese government cooperation. Concluding notes. SEL defense councils have been mainly confronted by the following difficulties. Difficulties in obtaining cooperation from the Lebanese authorities, the massive volume of information and the large number of pieces of evidence and the disclosure that has taken place, and inability to interview their own witnesses because their requests remain without response. The fact that the accused will be tried in absentia and therefore will not have any contact with their counsels exacerbates these difficulties. If the primary objective of this tribunal is to reach a verdict before its mandate expires in 2015, then the arguments presented in this seminar may be dismissed. However, if the main objective is to attain justice based on evidence beyond reasonable doubt, then I think these arguments merit attention because they are concerned with the fundamental principles of presumption of innocence, equality of arms between the prosecution and defense, and the basic rights of victims and the accused to a fair trial. The start of trials was initially set for March, March 25, 2013. However, pre-trial Judge Daniel Francin found that the prosecution had not disclosed the entirety of the materials to the defense and that the defense has not been able to access certain materials disclosed by the prosecution due to technical issues. Hence, he decided to set January 13, 2014 for the start of the trial and then postponed it again for a few days. Counsel Korkmaz held that, quote, on the 13th, I would say the conditions are not at all satisfactory. They're not optimal, and they do not allow the defense to fulfill its mandate in an effective way, unquote. His colleague, Counsel Courcel Labrousse, told the judges on October 29, 2013, Aunais's defense shall say to you that, yes, we will be present on the 13th, since from what I've understood, the trial is to start regardless, unquote. In conclusion, charges have been brought against five men, alleged to be members of an organization declared terrorist by a number of important countries, and the trial is underway. The alleged evidence adduced by the prosecutor is detailed and technical, if largely circumstantial. It is not that the defense counsel are not disposed or qualified to challenge the indictment and its supporting elements, despite the fact that the conditions for the defense in the first trial in absentia since Nuremberg are far from ideal. At the same time, however, one of, one of the most important voiced objectives of this tribunal is to end impunity for perpetrators of what are declared terrorist acts. I leave open the question whether such an aim should not require more rigorous compliance with the highest international standards of criminal justice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you covered. You did it on time. You <laughs> it covered an enormous amount of. Yeah. Um, you emphasised on many occasions the technical and voluminous nature of the material that you are dealing with, and I think you managed to present it um, extremely succinctly. And did you say on time? Thank you. Uh, right. That does give us quite a lot of time for some questions and discussion. Um, please, can you identify who you are, what your affiliation is, and keep your questions or comments brief so that there's time for plenty of people to participate?
What I'll do is take three or four at a time and then let Owa um, respond to them. Then we'll have another round. So we'll do it like that. Right, well, there seems to be one straight away. Um, I'm Antoine Ruffoul, I'm an architect, uh, a senior architect. Uh, my second home was Lebanon. I'm very, very saddened by all these <coughs> assassinations. My comment, and please don't take it wrong, uh, Dr. Nashabi, sure. I came really to hear you speak and not to hear you read because it doesn't do justice to the immense document that you have. And I have two questions. Is it, as a result of this comment, possible to have a copy of that document? Sure, sure. The second one, you mentioned logs of phone calls made by the alleged uh, assassins. Do you think the National Security Agency have any records of those logs, since they are excellent at surveillance, the NSA? Yeah, the NSA. Yeah, it's a good question. Okay. Other, other questions? Yes. Sorry? My name is I'm working at the Turkish Embassy. What could be the implications of special tribunal to the Syrian crisis or Syrian civil wars? Mm. You get that? The implications of the tribunal for the Syria situation. And I think there was a hand, yes, in front of you. My name is Anat Hamdan, and I'm a PhD student at King's College London. My question is, you were implying that the, um, those that are being accused of doing the assassination are not members of Hezbollah. If that's the case, then why has the Secretary General of Hezbollah come out so strongly in saying that he's not going to hand them over? Any more for this first round? Yes. Uh, my name is Rif Harani. I'm originally Lebanese, uh, studying uh, law at the University of Law here. Uh, my question is, what next for the tribunal? You know, mm. uh, they're, they're trying with an absentia, and Hezbollah said they'll never hand over those alleged suspects. So what's the point in, not what's the point in going on, <coughs> I mean, what next if they're never going to hand them over? Mm. And that's a good set of questions. Yes, yes, yes. So, <laughs> well, I, 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 I and I think you'll now have the chance you know, to talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, m- many of the questions are, are related to political analysis. And, uh, yeah, well, I expected that. I'll, I'll try to answer this uh, question, although the, the points I tried to raise in the paper, and I apologize for reading from the document and not talking, because I couldn't have remembered all this information. And even if I had these cards, I w- could have... I'm not... a you know, I, I could have messed it up and gave wrong information. <laughs> and it's uh, very meticulous at this point because I'm working as the uh, consultant for the defense, so I, I don't want to make a mistake in a date or in any information because I'm sure this is recorded and I'm sure the, the, uh, my colleagues, my learned friends at the uh, tribunal would love to listen to what I have to say and I'm using some strong terms in some places so I had to measure this and you know it's, it was a bit sensitive so I apologize I, I, I agree with you if I was in your place I would prefer that it would be more you know it's a talk not someone reading from a document but I will make that document available and there is a recording uh, I think a podcast uh, by, the, uh, by the university and I really uh, I, 
I am uh, with you on this point. Uh, now, uh, uh, the NSA, yes, we have... Uh, we, uh, the, well, I have to be careful with what I'm saying about what the defense does and that doesn't do, but I would think that it would be only logical for the defense to actually ask anyone who could have information to provide that information. I'm sure they, among, they, they wouldn't exclude anyone. Let me give this answer. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm not sure that they got the answers. Uh, uh, there was no cooperation with the defense, not only on the Lebanese level. I mean, Lebanon is more important to cooperate with the defense because, and it's more legally bound to cooperate with the defense than any other country because it's bound by Chapter 7 of the Security Council Resolution. But uh, other countries also have not been cooperating. I mean, there were some UNICC report also that said that there were 10 countries that they were not, were not cooperating with the tribunal at, the, at some point. Now, this issue was resolved because these countries started cooperating with the prosecution. In the case of defense, well, you see, the defense doesn't have any political group that backs it up. Uh, the prosecution has. I mean, if it likes it or not, the prosecution had a, a whole political coalition in Lebanon that backs it up, an international coalition. The defense is not even recognized by the accused themselves. By the people who support the accused themselves, they consider the tribunal in its entirety a conspiracy. So the defense that is part of the tribunal is part of the conspiracy, according to the people who support the accused. So that's a, a very big obstacle that we have, and we continue to have in order to you know, prepare the case to cross-examine the evidence presented by the prosecution. And the prosecution has not been disclosing the information, and I agree that it has the justification not to disclose the information because the, uh, this is the first trial in absentia for terrorism, international trial for terrorism, and it's in absentia. So those who are accused are uh, out there. So the, uh, the, the prosecution can easily justify and say, well, how am I going to disclose this when the accused are accused of terrorism and they're out there. You know, they can justify this to the judges, but that creates a challenge for fair trial. That's what I'm saying. I mean, how can we proceed? I, I would have preferred, uh, if I were to give my opinion, that the first trial for terrorism would not be in absentia, that they would have to be there. The persons who are accused of perpetrating terrorism should be tried in their presence not in absentia, because, I mean, I'm not sure that in absentia will lead to, to anything constructive. We'll get back to, to your point in a minute. Uh, uh, Mr. Al-Parektash, am I <laughs> pronouncing right? Okay. Uh, the, I, I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer your question. I don't know how this could have implications on what's happening in Syria. I'm sorry, I've been too much into the technicalities of the tribunal, so I haven't thought about that. I think what's happening in Syria is already very complicated and uh, not sure what to make of it when it comes to this tribunal. But I'm sure in Syria, what I can say as a personal comment that there are horrible crimes that were committed in Syria and since the start of uh, the, uh, the clashes uh, between the, the government and the opposition and, uh, and it would uh, be... be uh, it goes without saying to say that there should be a judicial process. I mean, I hope that this judicial process is going to offer fair trial guarantees better than this one. That's what I can say about Syria. Uh, Sorry, Ms. Can, I just, can, I say, can I just come in on Please. that? It's very evident, of course, that the Security Council hasn't made any referral of the situation in Syria to, for example, the International Criminal Court, yeah. as it did in yeah. the case of Libya. Yeah in um, February, wasn't it, of 2011. So at this point, 
although we have um, Human Rights Council reports, the International Commission on Syria, a low, great deal of documentation, graphic images, I mean. graphic images and um, the reports uh, giving prima facie of the various crimes against humanity. War crimes yeah. being well, this takes admitted. us back to the whole. There is no referral. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I shouldn't yeah. interrupt. Yeah. Excuse me. No, I just want to say that this takes us back to the whole idea of selective justice that is so heavily politically motivated, and that's a problem when it comes to international justice. Uh, for Ms. Hamdan, uh, uh, thank you for your question. Uh, when uh, the uh, 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 you have to, uh, we'll have to see with the, with the, with the Hezbollah themselves. But we're, what we're concerned is with the legal files of the accused and the indicted. The defense is appointed to defend the rights and interests of the accused, not the accused. And this is the trick when it comes to trial in absentia. Uh, the evidence presented does not show beyond reasonable doubt that they are members of Hezbollah. The speech of Sayyid Nasrallah, in fact, if you review it and translate it, says that, quote, they are brothers in the resistance against Israeli occupation, unquote. So he didn't actually explicitly say that they were members in his organization. Now, on the refusal to hand them in, there was this argument that was presented recently that said that the Hezbollah could have prevented the UN IIIC and the Lebanese judicial authorities from arresting the four generals in 2005. These four generals were incarcerated for four years arbitrarily and then released without any charge. Uh, to say the least, that doesn't encourage people to handing themselves over to international investigators if they're going to incarcerate them arbitrarily and then release them without charge, without telling them why they incarcerated them for four years. Uh, Mr. Jamil Sayed, who's one of the generals, he is in The Hague right now. He is in the public audience. He came out and gave a speech to the press saying that, hey, I was incarcerated four years in this case and no charges were pressed against me and I was not given any compensation. I don't know the reasons why I have been incarcerated for four years. There are four others, not just the four generals. There are four others, but we always talk about important people, but there were all four others that are not so important that didn't receive all this media attention. There are Mustafa Misto, uh, uh, Ayman Tarabai, and uh, the two brothers, Abdel Al. They were also incarcerated for three years and a half uh, without charges. Uh, before the tribunal started. Now, the tribunal will say that it is not responsible of that because that occurred before it started functioning on uh, March 1st, 2009. Uh, yes, but, uh, you know, the UNIIIC is very much related organically to the Office of the Prosecutor. In fact, they, as I mentioned, uh, uh, not this prosecutor, the prosecutor before was the commissioner for the UNIIIC and then metamorphosed into the prosecutor in the Special Review for Lebanon, one, two, the agreement attached to Resolution 1757 passed on the 30th of May 2007 states that the tribunal starts functioning, I believe Article 21, on a date set by the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations based on the progress uh, done by the UNIIIC. So therefore there is an organic link between the UNIIIC and the STL, although they are created by two separate Security Council resolutions, 1595 for the uh, uh, UN Triple IC and 1757 for the STL. Uh, Mr. Hurani, uh, thank you for your question. Uh, what next for the tribunal? Uh, that's also, you know, I join you, I also raise this question. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, there's a lot of tension, there's some um, division in Lebanon. It's very unfortunate. 
when you have so many, uh, you know, this is a, supposed to be a body that functions for uh, justice. And justice is supposed to be a guarantee for, you know, the future, for a stable future for Lebanon. I'm not sure all the indications show otherwise. They show growing tension. With the start of the tribunal today in Lebanese media, it's a bit mad, I can say. Uh, I mean, they're using the elements that are elements that are supposed to be for justice. They're using the, they're violating the presumption of innocence. They are jumping into conclusions. They are using the tribunal as an element of threat. And on the other side, there's this whole conspiracy theory that this uh, trial is an Israeli tribunal and it was created for... So both sides are using very strong terms, very, and that cr- increases the tension. And I, I think the big damage is going to be justice. I mean, we, uh, the objective is to know who killed the man, who killed Mr. Hariri, whoever... I mean, it has to be a process that is a, a, a transparent process, and uh, and people will have to actually believe, uh, have a, a minimum consensus on the judicial body. That minimum consensus isn't there, so I'm not sure if this is good news. Um, yeah, we'll have another round. Uh, I would just add, um, you mentioned that the, it's being recorded tonight, that you've noted the podcasts of your previous talk uh, yes, as they, well, which is available. Uh, they're right here. In the so handout at the end, there are two podcasts. Uh, from for previous. So that if people want to sort of follow the story, um, sort, of, sort of through, um, that would be a way of doing it. Um, yeah, so I saw some hands going up. So we'll take... One here, one at the back, and one here, and here. We'll take the four. So we'll start here. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Thank My name is Kaveh Musabi. I'm a uh, human rights lawyer at Oxford University. I'm also a Guantanamo Bay lawyer. I've had some considerable experience of also defence work in criminal prosecutions in the United States. Equality of arms is really an ideal that we all... It's like a perfect marriage that we all strive for. And almost none of us ever get there, you know. So to, to say that in this particular instance the equality of arms is, I mean, even in an English court, when you have a terrorist trial, you can see the, the thing is just so slanted against the defense uh, that much of the things, if I closed my eyes, if I came in a bit late, I almost would think that we're talking about the, some of the trials that are w- we're witnessing here in England, you know. So I think that by itself is not the, the, the conclusive. Nuremberg, the Soviets were sitting on the military panel or the tribunal, and they were the responsible for the Katyn massacre. Now, I don't think anybody would seriously today suggest that Nuremberg was, didn't have fair hearings in the sense that the outcome was a, a landmark, this, a decisive breakthrough for the cause of human rights. You know? So I think it, it's... Um, to suggest that you know, this, is, this is so slanted against the defence, so kind of is, after expert witnesses, well, in England right now, you know, the idea is that there is no uh, property in witnesses and they can be cross-examined. So I don't think these are the, I think the idea behind this is a, is a novel one, is a unique one, it should be supported, and with the greatest respect for the, um, uh, the, 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 the tone and the manner in which, and the passion with which you presented it, I, I am not, as, um, as, a, as a lawyer, I'm not as um, sceptical of the outcome as I think you have to begin somewhere. Uh, I've experienced the Rwanda tribunal, and my goodness, the kind of things I can see you're smiling, the kind of things one sees there. Um, I, I, I somehow don't get the sense this is going to be the nightmare that I, I sincerely hope that, um, that, uh, that at least that's what my hope is anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Um, someone at the back, yes. Malik Gavi, I'm working in the finance industry. 
Just a quick question on what the future implications uh, such a report would have to the definition of terrorism going forward and how it would be tried or how it would be defined broadly and what acts would fall and would not show And I can't remember. I think I said the first one, the blue, and then the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ali Khan, SOAS graduate and president of Middle Temple Students Association. Um, Dr. Nishabi, thank you so much for, uh, for your talk. Um, I have a couple of questions to try and make. Uh, firstly, um, my question is, what precedent, either formal or importantly informal, uh, does the trial so far, uh, in terms of form and indeed in terms of substance, hold for both international criminal law uh, and also in terms of what happens in Lebanon now with regards to justice? Uh, I, second question kind of tags onto that. In your previous podcast, which I, I had the pleasure of listening to before this, um, a lot of emphasis was put on the cost, the relative cost of this one tribunal compared to the day-to-day costs of uh, the running of justice in Lebanon. Um, now, with that in mind, and of course time's gone on, gone on and costs have come higher, considering you had known about these proceedings, uh, or indeed you've known about the, I would submit, failures in these proceedings, uh, why in 2012 did you decide to join as a consultant, considering you were deemed such a high threat? <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, I'm Kevin McGinnis, I'm a student, master's student at SOA as an avid reader of Al-Akbar, and uh, I guess my question to you is, be, I see that in the, in the handout that the assassination of George Howey has been added as prima facie evidence. Uh, I guess my question would be what's been developing around that? And also, I guess, as maybe answer that as a defense consultant, but also maybe as um, your personal opinion on the relationship between the two. Thank you. We'll have another round. Because I saw other hands going up. Make it. So we'll have another round in a moment. Thank you very much for the questions. Councillor Musa, yes, uh, I, I agree with you, but there are no trials in absentia here, in these trials that you mentioned. I am emphasizing on equality of arms in a trial in absentia. I think that's a different emphasis when the actual trial that I'm talking about, well, there's no contact between the, uh, the actual defense and the accused. So I think here, the, to emphasize on equality of uh, of arms has a particular purpose in order to allow the defense to do its job. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I, di- uh, I do not know, uh, I did not specialize in, in assessing Nuremberg trials. Uh, I would gladly uh, review this and get back to you. I'm not sure if it was fair or not, but uh, I'm uh, skeptical on this. Uh, it was the winners of the war who actually, you know, set out a trial to <coughs> To, uh, to try those who are the losers. So uh, I think uh, this by itself raises some questions. I'm not sure if this makes it a fair trial or not. Uh, well, it, yes, we would love to cross-examine the expert witnesses, but if he gives us their, if the prosecution discloses their identity only 30 days before, we can't even double-check their CVs. <laughs> we would like to, he's sending us a CV, that was told in, uh, in a pre-trial conference in public uh, of 600 pages for one of the experts and witnesses. 
uh, this is the background of this person, you know, and it's fully qualified. Or not qualified at all. You know, so it's a whether in in some way we're like doing fishing with a sea of documents. The defense has to stand there with a small can and fish and see, oh, you know what, we'll cross-examine. Oh, no, it's correct, so we'll move to something else and we'll fish again. We're supposed to examine everything that the prosecution presents and cross-examine, and that's for the, the good thing of the, the, the tribunal as a whole and for the prosecution. Uh, it's not uh, something that uh, is uh, for the benefit of the defense. It's for the benefit of the court. That's what we're talking about. And now, um, uh, Mr. Malik... Uh, for the definition of terrorism. Uh, yes, it's very interesting. Actually, the late uh, Judge uh, Antonio Cassesi, who was the president of the tribunal, the first president of the tribunal and who passed away, was very much uh, in favor of setting up this tribunal because he wanted to reach an international consensus on definition of terrorism. The only way that he found and that the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations and the, the uh, Mrs. O'Brien in the uh, Judicial Division and the Secretariat of the United Nations, they found it, that they would adopt the definition in the Lebanese law, Article 214. So that's an, uh, a definition of terrorism in 1958 uh, in Lebanon. And uh, what the tribunal did is that the appeals chamber allowed itself to reinterpret or re-explain the content of 214 and violation of sovereignty, I believe. That's my personal opinion. Because I believe the, uh, the legislative body in Lebanon was not even consulted. They are the ones who passed the law. They are the ones who are responsible of interpreting it. They were not even called as witnesses or as consultants to the tribunal, to the appeals chamber, when the pretrial judge asked a question about the details of that law because he's never used that law. He's never, you know, he's never been in a, in, a, in a tribunal that uses that particular article in the law. So that was a, a, an interesting thing. For the defin- what implication it will have on the international community, until now, no country has, has adopted 214 or Lebanese law to identify terrorism, until now. Not, uh, and no, not the United Nations has not recommended that for its members. Uh, Mr. Ali Khan, uh, uh, there is a a long list of, uh, as you have seen in the previous uh, podcast, there is a long list of people who have not been, uh, who have not had access to justice. In fact, what I mentioned and what is more important when you ask about precedent, you know the dead are dead. I believe uh, it is the disappeared that deserve more justice and the families of the disappeared. We have 17,000 disappeared in Lebanon. No international tribunal was set up to actually find the disappeared. A dead man is a dead man. You can put a flower on the grave. You can cry on the grave. You can feel sorry. But a, de- a disappeared, you don't know if they're still alive. You refuse. It's very difficult emotionally. In the year 2000, the government of Salim al-Hoss passed a decision where it allowed all the families of the disappeared to apply to have a death certificate. None applied. None applied. They are the ones who deserve this. I don't know uh, how people, how the people who set up this tribunal feel about how to find the priorities and where a good start would be, sir. I think a good start would be to look for the disappeared, rather. They, they have priority to have access to justice, regardless of what religion or what sect or what political affiliation or what, uh, whatever, uh, you know, uh, this is something that is across the humanity. Uh, as for uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that I am working for 
the defense. Yes, uh, I am still very critical. The defense presented a, a, a motion uh, that uh, that we 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 try we proved we tried to prove. Well, the judges were not convinced, but we proved that uh, the tribunal was uh, unconstitutional and. Uh, and that uh, it was created uh, by a political body that uh, violated the uh, constitutional provisions of Lebanon. And uh, still, I, uh, I still consider that the budget, when it comes to budget, is, uh, it's uh, inappropriate when it comes to the standards of democracy. What I did recently, in fact, and, uh, I, I, I visited the, uh, the head of the Parliamentary uh, Commission for Budget in Lebanon, Mr. Ibrahim Kanaan, MP Ibrahim Kanaan, and uh, in the presence of MP Rassam uh, Khaybir, head of the Parliamentary Commission for Human Rights, I uh, asked him uh, about the uh, audit report because Lebanon is paying 49%. This year it paid 30 million dollars, 30 million euros without uh, audit. So I'm telling him I'm, I'm one of the very few Lebanese who get paid by the legal aid unit, so get paid by that. Uh, uh, so I, I'm coming to ask as a Lebanese citizen that the Parliamentary Commission looks into the audit. Uh, this is not the case. Uh, my job as a consultant is uh, temporary. I'm independent. I get paid for the work I do for the indivi individual lawyers, not for the Office of Defense. So I'm not working for the tribunal. I'm being paid by the legal aid unit. I think that's a technicality that is important to mention. Uh, uh, Mr. Guinness, uh, Mr. McGuinness, uh, yes, for the George Howey case, I will have to mention this technical information that this tribunal, according to its mandate, has uh, jurisdiction over the assassination of Prime Minister Hariri and all the crimes that took place between the 1st of October 2005 and the 12th of December, two, uh, sorry, 1st of October 2004 and 12th of December 2005, if they prove to be connected to the Hariri assassination in terms of suspects, modus operandi, and victims. Uh, the prosecutor is supposed to present an application to the pretrial judge. The pretrial judge looks into it prima facie uh, and will agree if they are part of the jurisdiction or not. He has approved that the three cases, Marwan Hamadi, Lias uh, Al-Mur, and George Howey are part of the jurisdiction. However, there is no indictment <coughs> until now. So it's true, the prosecutor's office is supposed to continue its investigation in the George Howey case and issue an indictment. That is not the case until now. I think that the strategy, now this is my personal analysis I, that you asked me for, uh, I think that the prosecutor is waiting to actually file additional indictments in the Hariri case and since the connection is that what he's saying is that the same people who killed Hariri killed Howard. So he is waiting to actually, since he, he believes that he was able to make a breakthrough in the Hariri case, he's waiting to unfold more information in the Hariri case and then move to the allegedly connected cases. I think that's the strategy. We'll wait and see. But for the time being, the Hawi family has expressed uh, uh, strong words, I would say. If we followed in the media, his daughter, his family have expressed strong words, uh, strong criticism of the tribunal. And uh, I do not know if some of the witnesses uh, and some of the victims that are related to how we have withdrawn their application or not. But there were some, some uh, victims and some witnesses who had withdrawn uh, their uh, application to participate in the procedures.
Thank you. Um, right, there's two people in the front row, so I'll take first and then second. Others? Back? Or, yes, I'll come there afterwards. Right, so we'll start with you. Thank you. Um, uh, my name is Philippe Odini, I'm, uh, I'm a, a young researcher here at LSC. Um, I, I have two points. The first one is uh, one, one of the parts of uh, an aspect of your argument is that the defense office did not have access to, uh, did not enjoy the cooperation, the cooperation of the Lebanese government for its own uh, inquiries uh, in Lebanon. I wonder whether, I mean, <coughs> true, but also uh, another aspect I would like to emphasize is indeed that also the office, uh, the office of the prosecutor had enormous problems in uh, having. Uh, you know, access to cooperation yeah. uh, with the Lebanese government, especially taking into account that the government has changed uh, and before was Saad Ariri government, which is the son of the very person that has been uh, uh, killed and investigated upon, and then uh, the political balance shifted uh, on the other side, of course. So I wonder whether that somehow uh, defeats to a certain extent your argument on the political outs between defense and accused. And the second point, uh, and I wonder, and I'm curious why this has not been mentioned yet, but uh, the agreement between the UN and the uh, uh, Lebanese government with regard to the very foundation of the STL. Uh, to my knowledge, and I never cl clarified exactly, but it's never been voted in, uh, by the parliament. And, uh, uh, and uh, the, there has been, especially in the beginning, uh, um, a lot of uh, polemics with regard to the fact the legitimacy of the procedure itself was uh, uh, highly problematic due to the fact there has never been a parliamentary vote uh, in this respect. And I think not even the ratification from the president uh, of the republic itself or something like that as well. But doesn't that also undermine the legitimacy of the STL uh, profoundly? And is that an argument for the uh, defense as well or not? Thank you. Of the prosecution or defense? All right. For, for, for both, I guess. <laughs> Yes. Uh, sorry, well, are you ready? Yes, please. Hi. I have a, 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 a question, a technical question, and, and an observation, which I want your, your uh, opinion on. Uh, the technical question is, was, uh, my understanding is that there was a, an indi another indictment that was uh, to be issued last year, and it was postponed, and, it, and that it was connected to the... To the, uh, to the uh, uh, Howie case. Uh, the Howie case. Well, the, uh, or some of one of the connected cases. So, okay. so there, there was a an indictment that was postponed and then re-postponed again. And uh, so, could, could you clarify sure. that because uh, I, I couldn't re remember exactly which one. Uh, I mean, you, you you mentioned the 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 two political sides <coughs> in Lebanon, and of course you are. Uh, I mean, very obviously identified with one of these political sides. It's not a, you don't hide it. It's my opinion, yes, it's my opinion. Yeah, it is your opinion. So, but, um, now, would you agree with me that of the two sides, they both now acknowledge the legitimacy and the best practices of the tribunal? Because there's, there's been a kind of a switch, switch in role. Before the, before the tribunal was set up and before it started, your side, uh, your, your political side, was <laughs> trying its best to undermine the legitimacy of the tribunal. Yes. Uh, and uh, whereas from now on, your, your political side, <laughs> and you, you personally, 
are in a way hiding behind the best practices of the tribunal. So in a way you have a stake in the success of the tribunal and it, its best practices politically as Amar Nashebi from that side, from that political side. Uh, more than the actual, uh, more than the other side, because the other side who are the victims, the side of the victims in this, uh, would, would be very happy if the tribunal goes tomorrow, because they, were, they, they, they already have the indictment, they know the truth, and it can only go downhill from now. So, 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 so in, in a way, the tribunal has been hugely successful because both sides of the political divide in Lebanon have endorsed it in, in a sense. One, by your participation and your insistence on best practices, which you recognize are important in, 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 this, in this case. Uh, and uh, this does, I mean, the, the way this compares to the political acceptance of other international tribunal uh, is very favorable to the STL because the, the, I mean, if you go to Yugoslavia, the, the, the approval rating is minimal mm -hmm. uh, compared to the, the Okay, thank you very much. Um, do you want to do those two, and then we'll just come to them. We'll have the final two. There's two people got their hands up. Yes. So if we'll answer these, then we'll have the final two, yes. and then we'll click conclude. Yes. Okay. Yes, Filippo, thank you very much for the uh, cooperation. I, I would like to, if you don't mind, uh, can I read quickly uh, that the uh, uh, the prosecution has not been prejudiced uh, by non-cooperation for Lebanon. I, I didn't read that part on. Uh, 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 in each of the UNIIIC UN report, the Lebanon is specifically thanked for its support for the cooperation of the UNIIIC and details its close interaction. It enjoyed the Lebanese authorities on all matters relevant to its mandate, highlighting its close and collegial quote, close and collegial working relationship with the internal security forces and Lebanese army. Unquote. Uh, uh, by July 2007, the Commission detailed that since January 2006, it had submitted 88 requests for assistance seeking to obtain relevant documents. The prosecution has publicly acknowledged its own working relationship with the Lebanese authorities. It has also enjoyed access and control over the investigative materials compiled by both Lebanese authorities and the UNIIIC, after which it chose to bring the case against the accused. Non-cooperation by the Lebanese authorities is therefore selective and exclusively affects the defense. Uh, the references are there. <coughs> so that's when it comes to the double standards of cooperation of Lebanon and the ISF and the army and the judicial body and the whole government in Lebanon with the, with the tribunal is only one-sided. Uh, um, the agreement, uh, yes, the agreement was uh, not voted in Parliament. And here, there's a convergence between the two questions, so I will answer something that could be useful perhaps to answer the, your question, Mr. Shahadi. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, tri the, the tribunal was set up in violation of the constitutional provisions. This is clear, and, and that's what made the Security Council go to Chapter 7, because Chapter 7 is the only chapter in the in the UN Charter that would allow the Security Council the, to bypass the sovereignty of a member state. But the parliament and the governments that came later, and this to give merit to what you just mentioned, uh, in its ministerial statements uh, mentioned the tribunal and recognized it. If it were the government under Mr. Hariri, under Mr. Sanura, or under the current 
undertaker uh, prime minister mr najib miqati who uh, 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 under- not under- under- undertaker uh, tasrif uh, 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 the term caretaker sorry i think it's very appropriate it's a slip yeah maybe yeah especially given the 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 performance of this government yeah the performance of who is actually a member of parliament from the future bloc actually but uh, uh, Mr. Najib Mi'ati, if I recall right, uh, uh, he had the voice in Tripoli, you, you know that. So uh, the point is that uh, Mr. Mi'ati, in the presidential statement, uh, stated clearly that Lebanon abides by this tribunal. In fact, he made sure that the money was paid on time, unconstitutionally. And, and Hezbollah approved it free? Uh, unconstitutionally. No, Even if has that reinforces my point. Yes, yes, but... Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I agree with you. Uh, I'm uh, not de- de- defending any political party. What no, I'm concerned with... I know you. I know you. What I'm concerned with here is uh, the uh, if this tribunal will provide the full rights of the accused to a fair trial. That's the point in question here. I, I'm not defending any party. If Hezbollah or other than Hezbollah, there is a constitution, they're supposed to abide by it if it's Hezbollah or anyone else. So uh, this is a violation of the provision of the constitution. When the money was sent and Mr. Mikati spent the money and Hezbollah did not object to it or objected to it, that's, that's Hezbollah's problem. Uh, uh, and the political group that you... Uh, you uh, alle- you say that I am allegedly belonging. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to prove it beyond you. Don't have a No, no. Uh, I, uh, yes, but I have you a, are. Are yes, you or not? Okay. Okay. Yes, okay. yes I, I will respond. Uh, I have a political no, position, but yeah, I don't. But is it? Is it? I mean, I don't belong to a political party. That's what I'm trying to say. Is your position clearly? Over the years, I mean, all your articles are there. Yes. So, yeah, so yes. 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 They are critical, and they remain, not, yeah. and they remain to be critical. In fact, the background section that was distributed in the handout yeah. is uh, the uh, almost identical to a paper that I gave uh, uh, four years ago. And, and they refer to conspiracy theories. Your articles. Yeah, please, because yes. we are running out of time, and there are two other okay. people who want to get a question. I, I will. So, I will we need to have a beer later. <laughs> sure. No problem. Anytime. Uh, but uh, the uh, I will uh, respond to your question uh, when. Uh, the, on the issue of Mr. Howie, I don't believe that uh, there was an indictment in Mr. Howie. I'm not aware of the information. You seem no, to be that's aware. What I'm, no, that's I, what I'm asking. Yes. Uh, who was the indictment for? Which was uh, well, the postponing of the indictment that was made public was the indictment of Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Miller. Uh, so it's the same one. Yes, uh, and, and we are not sure why did uh, did it take the prosecutor so long to actually ask for a joinder. And it's a big problem today at the tribunal. The lawyers of Mr. Meray are sitting in the, in the gallery, in the public gallery. They are not sitting in court, although the name of Mr. Meray as, quote, alleged co-conspirator is being mentioned by the prosecutor as they present their opening statement. I think that's a clear breach of the uh, fundamental principles that guarantee fair trial. What I'm holding on to, to are the best practices of international criminal justice, not the best practices of the tribunal. That was my position initially, Mr. Shahadi. So uh, I'm not more in favor of the tribunal or less in favor. I have always been in favor for these principles of fair trial. And that is not the case today. That wasn't the case four years ago. Right, we've got four minutes. So if the last two people can make your questions very brief indeed, and sort of very quick. So um, just, just the two, I'm afraid. So, yeah. I was just wondering what you think 
that this trial, do you think this trial will um, pave the way for the establishment of further international tribunals to try people on the charge of terrorism? And behind you? Well, and I would like just to get a small comment from about your opinion on, well, as he's saying, you know, it's going to take, you know, this kind of way, you know, that states what terrorism is or something like that. I'm just seeing it more into some of the increased attempts to increase the tension between two parties in Lebanon, which are the Shia and the Sunni. So, what are your comments? I know you cannot answer my question, basically, but if you have any comments on this. Yes. Thank you. I thank you very much. And... Um, so sort of one sentence each yes. for reply. Yes, yes. Uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm not sure. If, if this trial can, uh, can fix it, can provide for the defense to actually, you know, present their case in full, if the prosecution could disclose the information, it could set an example for, uh, 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 for the trial that would function from it. But I think that trial in absentia is problematic, heavily problematic. I think this is a big challenge. So I think the mandate should change and it should be expanded. And there are some priorities that we talked about that I think should be addressed before this particular uh, crime is addressed. Because there is also a perspective that it is only the powerful and the rich who get international tribunals or who get access to justice more than the regular people. You know, so there is this kind of perhaps a Marxist argument that can be also important and relevant. So... That's a problematic. For the, uh, for the tension, I'm afraid that it is clear now, no one can deny that the tension between Shias and Sunnis is rising with all the clashes in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon. And uh, what this tribunal does, I, I don't think it will decrease this tension, to say the least. I think that the more it's been used in the media, as this is a Sunni prime minister and there are Shiites assass- uh, accused of assassinating him, it will no doubt contribute to a rise in tension, unfortunately. Although it's not about that. It's not supposed to be about that. It's supposed to be about a former prime minister, a human being who was assassinated in a horrible way, and people who assassinated him, and about figuring out who these people are. And maybe I'm being too simplistic, but that's the bottom line. And that's the way it should be, but unfortunately, it's not. And on that, um, this remains me to stick. <laughs>